0: It's Thursday, March 30th, 2023, the 799th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. So we left off yesterday talking about color revolutions and about how the color revolution playbook is used continuously around the world to destabilize governments. And it has been a tactic that has been employed for decades and decades in different places at different times with slight variations, but always for the same purpose and always by the same people. And one of the main features in these color revolutions is that eventually they take to the streets and they have left-wing agitators, well-funded and well-organized. And sure, parts of it might be grassroots. People just spontaneously join because they think that the agitators are legitimate and real and organic and that they represent the values that the joiners represent as well. And we've seen this in America over the years, Black Lives Matter and TIFA throughout most of the last decade. After the leak of the draft of the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe versus Wade, we were told we were going to see direct action. There was a group that called itself Jane's Revenge that began wreaking havoc Around the country, in very BLM Antifa ways. It wasn't nearly as severe or nearly as widespread, but they went after various religious organizations and pregnancy clinics because they wanted to show the country that the country was mad about the abortion decision, even though their cause wasn't all that popular and the group itself and their communications to the public were. Ridiculous. Well, we have another one of those on Saturday this week. It's supposed to be a trans day of vengeance, and their ads say, Come masked to the Supreme Court, bring a buddy. They're going to have a little Antifa style riot on the steps of the Supreme Court, apparently. Maybe it'll even evolve into an insurrection. In fact, there's an insurrection happening with leftist agitators. In Tennessee, right now. But it's not called an insurrection because it's leftists doing the insurrecting. And you're not allowed to say insurrection or insurrection act when it's the leftists doing that. Remember back to the summer of 2020 when Senator Tom Cotton wrote an op ed for the New York Times about the insurrection act. And that caused the editorial board of the New York Times to melt down completely. You see, you got to remember that when it's the leftists doing it, it's totally okay because the system in power actually wants them to do it. It's part of the program. It's not an accident. It's not random. It's not organic. It's not spontaneous. It's just a page out of the playbook. Of course, they want the ability to run all their plays. That's the only way the system works. This is from the Washington Times on Tuesday. U.S. Marshals told not to arrest protesters outside justices' homes, documents reveal. Deputy U.S. Marshals assigned to guard U.S. Supreme Court justices last year were directed to try not to make arrests. According to documents, a U.S. Senator revealed Tuesday, contradicting Attorney General Merrick Garland's assurances to Congress. Senator Katie Britt, Alabama Republican, Confronted Mr. Garland with the training package used for the marshals deployed to protect justices. It said arrests were not to be a priority. Conservatives have argued the protests, which erupted after a draft of the Dobbs ruling leaked last spring, violate a federal statute that outlaws protesting against a judge's home with the intent of influencing a ruling. Nobody was charged under that statute. Mr. Garland told senators earlier this month that his prosecutors couldn't bring cases unless the marshals made arrests, and the marshals on the scene didn't think there was a reason to do that. Ms. Britt said the guidance documents show they were directed not to. They were actively discouraged from doing so, she said. One section of the guidance specifically said making arrests was, quote, not the goal of the deployment. And another section said arrests should be, quote, a last resort to prevent physical harm. That seems to undercut Mr. Garland's suggestion that agents were free to make arrests for protesting judges, but just didn't see any need. One page of the guidance dealt specifically with the law governing pressuring of judges. It said the law could invite legal challenges and discourage the marshals from making arrests under that section. A final page said any arrests needed to be coordinated with federal prosecutors first which Miss Britt said also contradicts Mr. Garland's assertion that the marshals had a free hand. Any contemplated marshals enforcement action should be coordinated in advance with the appropriate U.S.A.O., the guidance said, using the abbreviation for U.S. Attorney's Office. Miss Britt asked Mr. Garland at a Senate Appropriations Committee hearing on Tuesday whether he was aware of the directives. He said he was not aware, but stood by his earlier comments that the marshals were still able to act. He said their first responsibility was to protect the lives and property of the justices, quote, but that doesn't mean they are in any way precluded from making other kinds of arrests. It's clear the marshals were given a different directive. Ms. Britt told him, I'd ask you to look into that. The lack of arrest has struck a nerve with conservatives who draw contrast with the Justice Department's zealous efforts in prosecuting pro-life demonstrators outside abortion clinics. Mr. Garland defended his handling of the justices security, saying he took the unprecedented step of deploying the marshals to protect the justices. But he told the appropriations panel Tuesday that he doesn't want that mission to last indefinitely and that the Supreme Court's police force should take over at some point. We're hoping this isn't a long-term solution for justices, he said. So it's possible that all of this is just part of the trend I was describing before. The leftists are allowed to do what they want. We know that Kamala Harris and other prominent figures in the commie sphere were tweeting out bail funds for people to donate to, to get these rioters back out on the streets, get them out of jail. And let them continue burning down cities and looting stores and taking over entire sections of cities like they did in Chaz Chop in Seattle in 2020. They did most of that without a bit of response from law enforcement or anyone else. And then we see the very violent insurrection and grandmothers who were walking between velvet ropes get put away for that. So this certainly illustrates that double standard, but you got to look at it a few ways. And it's possible that the marshals had their hands tied from making these arrests based on that statute because they were simply there to do something else. And let's stick with the Supreme Court for just a few more minutes. This is from Monday in the Western Journal. Supreme Court hands down big victory to Trump. Even Joe Biden agreed. In a case that found the Biden administration supporting a position taken by former President Donald Trump, steel tariffs imposed by Trump will remain in effect. The court on Monday denied to hear the appeal of USP holdings after lower courts rejected its claim that the Trump administration acted improperly when it enacted tariffs. President Joe Biden has left the tariffs largely as Trump imposed them and supported the tariffs in the court case against U.S.P. Holdings and other companies that said they import steel and were damaged by the tariffs, according to the Epoch Times. Politico noted that although the tariffs angered allies, American workers were part of the presidential equation in Biden keeping a piece of Trump's policy intact. The Biden administration understands that simply lifting steel tariffs without any solution in place, particularly beyond the dialogue, could well mean layoffs and plant closures in Pennsylvania and in Ohio and other states where obviously the impact would be felt not only economically, but politically, said Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. The tariffs went into effect on March 1st, 2018. A 25% tariff on imported steel from most countries was imposed, along with a 10% tariff on imported aluminum. When a country is losing billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. Example, when we are down $100 billion with a certain country and they get cute, don't trade anymore. We win big. It's easy. Trump tweeted when the tariff was imposed. The case largely focused on the administrative machinations of the tariffs approval. As noted in their petition to the Supreme Court, USP and other companies suing tried to claim that former Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross's report that recommended the tariff was in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act, claiming the report was, quote, arbitrary and capricious. The trade court rejected that argument in 2021, saying the report was not a final agency action. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, Differed from the trade court about the report, but still denied that imposing the tariffs violated the Administrative Procedures Act. USP Holdings then appealed to the Supreme Court, which turned away the appeal without comment. The tariffs have had, I would say, very modest impacts on steel-consuming industries and have had the desired results so far for the domestic steel industry, Paul said, according to Politico. The Supreme Court last year refused to hear a challenge by steel companies to Trump's 2018 action to double tariffs on steel from Turkey, according to U.S. News and World Report. So this is good news for not only Trump's America First policy in regard to the tariffs, but it's good for America First policies in general. These lawsuits are Obviously, attempts to remove America first policies and make them harder to implement in the future. And that effort has failed. And one more story regarding the Supreme Court. This is from The Washington Post on Tuesday. Supreme Court justices under new ethics disclosures on trips, other gifts. Supreme Court justices and all federal judges must provide a fuller public accounting of free trips, meals, and other gifts they accept from corporations or other organizations according to revised regulations quietly adopted this month. The new requirements mark a technical but significant change that lawmakers and court transparency advocates hope will lead to more disclosure by judges and justices and also make it easier for parties in specific cases to request that judges remove themselves from cases when potential conflicts arise. And that's the interesting part. I have talked before about how we have all of these judges around the country who have these massive investment portfolios in funds that often contain within the funds entities and organizations that are coming before the court. The fact that the investments are part of a fund rather than direct investments allows most judges to totally avoid that conflict of interest issue, but when it arises, they are supposed to recuse. And occasionally, it even happens. Gifts such as an overnight stay at a personal vacation home owned by a friend remain exempt from reporting requirements. But the revised rules require disclosure when judges are treated to stays at commercial properties, such as hotels, ski resorts, or corporate hunting lodges. The changes also clarify that judges must report travel by private jet. The revisions come after years of pressure from members of Congress who say the judiciary should follow ethics guidelines closer to those that apply to the executive and legislative branches. The revised rules were adopted by a committee of the Judicial Conference, the court's policymaking body. They took effect March 14th, according to a letter last week from the administrative office of the U.S. courts replying to questions from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who has pressed for more transparency as chairman of the Judiciary Committee's panel overseeing the federal courts. And Sheldon Whitehouse is a dyed in the wool communist. He is also a member of an all white beach club in Rhode Island. But again, it's okay because he's a Democrat. Federal law mandates that top officials from the three branches of government file annual forms detailing their finances, outside income, and spouses' sources of income, with each branch determining its own reporting standards. Judges are prohibited from accepting gifts from anyone with business before the court. The judicial branch, however, had not clearly defined the exemption for gifts considered personal hospitality. The revised rule addresses that ambiguity. And the article is a bit long, so I'm just going to skip around a bit here. White House and Court Transparency, and this is Sheldon White House, not the White House. White House and Court Transparency advocates pointed to unanswered questions about who paid for hunting trips of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia as a prime example of the need for additional disclosure. Scalia. Very interesting. In 2004, the Sierra Club requested that Scalia recuse himself from a case involving Vice President Dick Cheney after news reports that Scalia had flown on Air Force Two, the vice presidential jet, with Cheney and others on a hunting trip to Louisiana. Scalia refused to step out of the case, writing in a 20-page memo that he did not believe his impartiality can reasonably be questioned, the legal standard for recusal. The justice publicly reported taking more than 200 subsidized trips during his last decade on the bench, many of those to lecture at universities or for legal groups, including the conservative Federalist Society. Scalia did not report many of his free hunting vacations, according to a review of his financial disclosure forms. For instance, after speaking at Texas Tech University in 2008, Scalia joined a group of lawyers to hunt at a private ranch and made no mention of the excursion on his government form. In 2016, Scalia was found dead of a heart attack at the West Texas hunting resort, Cibolo Creek Ranch, after traveling there on a private plane with a prominent Washington attorney, highlighting how little Americans know about the perks justices enjoy and who provides them. That incident does not highlight how little Americans know about the perks justices enjoy and who provides them, that highlights how the regime opens up new positions on the Supreme Court. If you've never been down the Antonin Scalia death rabbit hole, I suggest you give it a try. Skipping down once again, rules around subsidized trips are not the only questions of ethics at the Supreme Court recently. Separately, The court has been under pressure to adopt a code of conduct specific to the nine justices. The high court has failed to reach consensus on a policy despite discussion that dates to at least 2019. Last month, leaders of the American Bar Association joined those calling on the court to act, saying that, quote, the absence of a clearly articulated binding code of ethics for the justices of the court imperils the legitimacy of the court. That's the American Bar Association saying that. And if we've learned anything about the American Bar Association over the last few years, it's that they don't have the same view of the Constitution that people would imagine they do. They have been part of the effort to go after attorneys who, for instance, are pursuing claims of election fraud. We're watching attorneys be threatened and attacked with sanctions. But they want a binding code of ethics for the justices of the Supreme Court, which means that if they can find a violation, well, then they can go after the justices. And here's the kicker. The justices are not bound by the code of conduct that covers other U.S. judges. They say they voluntarily comply with the same ethics standards. But scrutiny of the justices has increased with the court's heightened profile as a new conservative majority has moved quickly to rule on polarizing cases. So they're doing their jobs, but the regime simply isn't into the makeup of the court. And so they want to find new ways to go after these conservative majority justices. And one of the tactics always employed is getting more information on whoever the latest target is, then finding this new information and attacking based on that information. Oh, look at this shocking information that was just disclosed about Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito. Can you imagine that we have someone like this on the court? And then they'd start the whole narrative about how we have to get this person or that person kicked off the court. And again, it's not the leftists. But this is the sort of thing that could come back to bite all those leftist activist judges if they actually get what they want right now. That's how the boomerang works. They throw it out thinking that they're going to nail someone and they end up nailing themselves. Now, let's get international for a little while. This morning, the fake secretary of state of the illegitimate administration released this statement. We are deeply concerned over Russia's widely reported detention of a U.S. citizen journalist. We are in contact with The Wall Street Journal on this situation. Whenever a U.S. citizen is detained abroad, we immediately seek consular access and seek to provide All appropriate support in the strongest possible terms. We condemn the Kremlin's continued attempts to intimidate, repress and punish journalists and civil society voices. The Department of State's highest priority is the safety and security of U.S. citizens abroad. We reiterate our strong warnings about the danger posed to U.S. citizens inside the Russian Federation. U.S. citizens residing or traveling in Russia should depart immediately as stated in our travel advisory for Russia. So let's find out a little bit more about this journalist. And just for humor's sake, let's go to Vanity Fair. This will be the most ridiculous version of the story. Wall Street Journal reporter arrested in Russia accused of espionage. An American journalist was detained by Russian authorities and accused of espionage Thursday, marking what is, quote, believed to be the first American reporter to be held as an accused spy in Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union, according to The New York Times. Evan Gershkovich, a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, who is part of the paper's Moscow bureau, had been working in Russia since 2017. Gershkovich, 31 is suspected of spying in the interests of the American government. The Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB, Russia's top domestic security agency and main successor to the Soviet-era KGB, said in a statement. FSB also noted that Gershkovich is accredited to work in Russia by the country's foreign ministry, but claimed that the reporter acting on the instructions of the American side, collected information constituting a state secret about the activities of one of the enterprises of the Russian military-industrial complex. And you have to love the framing of the FSB as the main successor to the Soviet-era KGB, as if somehow the unchecked power of our federal law enforcement isn't absolutely guilty of all the things they say the KGB and FSB do. And I don't have to argue that somehow the KGB or the FSB are good to note that the FBI is doing all those things. In a statement, the journal said it was deeply concerned for the safety of its reporter, denying the charges against him and calling for his release. The Wall Street Journal vehemently denies the allegation from the FSB and seeks the immediate release of our trusted and dedicated reporter, Evan Gershkovich. The paper said in a statement, we stand in solidarity with Evan and his family. Gershkovich was detained in Yekaterinburg, some 900 miles east of Moscow in the Ural Mountains. The Kremlin endorsed the arrest hours after it occurred. We're not talking about suspicions, Dmitry Peskov, spokesman for President Vladimir Putin, said in a daily conference call with journalists, per The Times. Peskov claimed Gershkovich was caught red-handed, but said he could not provide further details. Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova likewise claimed that Gershkovich was using his credentials for, quote, activities that have nothing to do with journalism, end quote, per the Associated Press journalists responded to the news with a mix of horror and solidarity evan is accredited by russia's ministry of foreign affairs and was simply doing his job journalism is not a crime tweeted max seddon moscow bureau chief for the financial times who added that the arrest is quote yet another troubling sign of the off the charts repression paranoia and hostility to the u.s in russia right now a moment of which evan was one of our finest chroniclers Robin Dixon, Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post, called Gershkovich, quote, a highly respected, excellent journalist, end quote, noting, quote, it is horrifying to be writing this story, end quote. Gershkovich could face up to 20 years in prison if convicted of espionage. Espionage trials in the country can take months and are typically conducted in secret, the Times reports. Acquittals are virtually unheard of. The journalist's detainment follows orders that Putin gave in October, quote, granting local governments in the country's regions new authority to address security concerns. The journal reports several news organizations like CNN and BBC downsized their presence in Russia last year following Putin's invasion of Ukraine when the Kremlin passed a law making it illegal to publish what they consider false information about military operations in Ukraine. The move not only stifled the free flow of information within the country as it virtually eradicated independent media, but it also kept it from coming into the country. Well, okay, so Russia is controlling the information flow in their country, just like the United States is. They're controlling the information flow in their country from foreigners. In this example, we have that happening and we have our regime influencing the information flow from its own citizens and violating the First Amendment directly in doing so. So whoops, you got no moral high ground there. Do you have moral high ground on pursuing journalists? No, they broke down James O'Keefe's door. They've gone after James O'Keefe constantly for the last few years, most notably for possessing at some point, Ashley Biden's diary. Last week, when Matt Taibbi was testifying in Congress, the IRS visited his home. Same time, which is either overt harassment of the press and a threat, or it is the biggest coincidence in all of human history. And it'll be interested to see how this plays out. This 31 year old who's been there for six years, we are told we've never heard of him before. But now we're told that we should feel very angry and very emotional about how this journalist has been detained on espionage charges. Do we know whether or not this journalist committed espionage? No, we don't know that. So why are we being presented with this story as if he's definitely innocent and this is some major violation of free speech rights? By foreigners in Russia? I mean, it's not that. And these people don't care about free speech rights, including of American citizens. So what are they telling us and why are we being told this way? Why is Antony Blinken warning other Americans to leave? Is he concerned that Russia is just going to go around arresting Americans and saying they were all involved in espionage? That seems rather unlikely. I mean, they did detain that guy who plays in the WNBA, but Joe Biden got him back simply by trading a world-renowned arms dealer. So, you know, this administration totally takes care of business. Now, this is just a bit of speculation, but something to keep our eyes open for. You got to wonder if maybe we're seeing the first bits of a rerun of the Jamal Khashoggi story in Saudi Arabia. Years back. And just some more information on Evan Gershkovich. This is from Wikipedia. Gershkovich worked for AFP and the Moscow Times before moving to the Wall Street Journal in January of 2022. He speaks Russian and had lived in Russia for the six years prior to his arrest, at the time of which he was based out of the Wall Street Journal's bureau in Moscow and covering the war in Ukraine. He was working in Yekaterinburg when arrested covering the Russian mercenary military organization, Wagner. So we are supposed to believe that Russia has detained this American journalist because of his coverage of the war in Ukraine. Does that make any sense after reading that article? There are still American news organizations based in Russia, and Putin's not taking all of them apart. He's not arresting all of them. Why not just go arrest all the journalists? And who, once again, is Antony Blinken warning? This is from the Daily Mail today. Russia's Sergei Lavrov will chair UN Security Council meeting in New York in April. Well, that sounds interesting. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, will chair the UN Security Council meeting in New York in April, despite Moscow being at war with Ukraine. And that framing is so funny. What are they going to do? Deplatform him? They're going to use cancel culture against Sergei Lavrov in the UN? Moscow said Lavrov will chair the meeting next month when Russia will hold the rotating presidency of the international body. Ukraine has called for Russia to be removed from the Security Council over the military operation launched in February last year and condemned its presidency next month as a bad joke. (laughs) <laughs> Your president is a comedic actor, brah. Another key event of the Russian presidency of the Security Council will be a high level open debate on the effective multilateralism through the defense of the principles of the UN Charter. Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova told a press briefing this meeting will be chaired by Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Last month, Russia's U.N. ambassador Vasily Nebenzia said Moscow was planning to hold a meeting of the U.N. Security Council on what he said is the, quote, real situation of Ukrainian children deported to Russia. This is an issue that came to the fore following the International Criminal Court's arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin for war crimes related to their abduction. The court said it was seeking Putin's arrest because he is, quote, allegedly responsible for the war crime of unlawful deportation of children and that of unlawful transfer of children from occupied areas of Ukraine to the Russian Federation. So Vladimir Putin is the real child trafficker, not the people who run child trafficking businesses. Got it. Since Putin launched the invasion more than a year ago, Russians have been accused of deporting Ukrainian children to Russia or Russian held territories to raise them as their own. And I got to say, that doesn't sound nearly as bad as getting, you know, totally assaulted and abused on the trip across our southern border as part of the slave trade. I'm sure it's much worse to be taken in by a Russian family and raised as their own. At least a thousand children were seized from schools and orphanages in the Kursan region during Russia's eight month occupation of the area. Local authorities say their whereabouts are still unknown. Nabenzia called the issue of children totally overblown and said Moscow wants to explain at the Security Council meeting around April 6th that they were taken to Russia simply because we wanted to spare them of the danger that military activities may bring. Nabenzia was asked whether Russia planned on returning the children. He said when conditions are safe, of course. Why not? So it sounds like we will see a full public refutation of the international court's ridiculous arrest warrant based on what Putin is allegedly responsible for. And you might recall yesterday when we were discussing the color revolutions, how Human Rights Watch had made all of the claims against Slobodan Milosevic, and that was the basis for the accusations of war crimes against Milosevic as well. Speaking of Ukraine, this post this morning was retweeted by Gonzalo Lira on Twitter. I've mentioned Gonzalo Lira before. Intrepid international journalist, been on the ground in Ukraine the whole time. And he has been doing legitimately dangerous work there by reporting what's actually happening on the ground. The post he retweeted shares information from the Ukrainian channel Legitimny. It says, our source reports that the West handed over new tanks under the conditions that they would not be used in the forefront of an offensive or defensive operation. The office of the president is categorically dissatisfied with this behind-the-scenes requirement, but he promised to keep it. Negotiations are ongoing to use these new tanks, Leopard 2A4 and A6, and Challenger 2, on the front lines. It is important for Kiev to strengthen the front rows at the front with such toys and not just use them in the rear or in Kiev as exhibition items as the partners want. So if that's a little unclear, basically what it's saying is these tanks that have been promised to Ukraine are promised on the condition that they're not actually brought to the front lines and used in operations against Russia. They're just supposed to sit around Kiev as some superficial show of strength or something, some display of the West's commitment to Ukraine. And as I said, unconfirmed, but it does fall into line with this. This is Michael McCall on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. It should be noted that Michael McCall is one of the people who was begging for cluster bombs to be sent to the front so that Ukraine could use them in protecting its very sovereign borders. Absolute warmonger.
2: It's been a year since Vladimir Putin launched his unprovoked war of aggression in Ukraine. And in response, Europe has provided significant aid, but must continue to do uh, more to keep the government of Ukraine from defaulting and ensure it's able to prosecute the war. Additionally, Congress has also provided a significant amount of assistance to Ukraine to ensure Putin's aggression is stopped at Ukraine's border and that a NATO ally is not next. I've supported U.S. assistance because a victory by Putin and Ukraine would further embolden Americans' adversaries, from Chairman Xi in Beijing to the Ayatollah in Tehran to Kim Jong-un in North Korea. However, it's it's imperative that the American people know about the existing accountability mechanisms, including third-party monitors such as Deloitte and the robust oversight being conducted by Congress, and in particular, this committee. When Republicans took the majority, we made it very clear that accountability will be paramount to continued assistance in Ukraine. This is just the first of many hearings and briefings I will hold to ensure the assistance we are providing is being used as intended. Of the $113 billion appropriated across four supplementals, approximately 60% is going to American troops, American workers, and to modernizing American stockpiles. In fact, only 20% of the funding is going directly to the Ukrainian government in the form of direct budgetary assistance. As required by law, these funds are only dispersed to to Ukraine following verification that the money is spent on approved items and activities. All funds are also subjected to external third-party monitoring by Deloitte. They are conducting randomized spot checks to verify the use of this assistance. Additionally, they are working with Ukraine's Ministry of Finance to review its monitoring, transparency, verification, and procedures.
0: So what caught my attention and the attention of others in that clip is the part where McCall says of the $113 billion appropriated, approximately 60% is going to American troops, American workers, and on modernizing American stockpiles. And we've been hearing for a while that only a small percentage of the money and weapons are actually making their way to Ukraine and ending up at the front lines, and there has been very little accounting of where all of that is going. The new piece of information here is that 60% seems to be getting redirected right back into America's military. And so is this a payoff to the military industrial complex in the name of protecting Ukraine? Or is this just a good thing that America's military is being built up Seemingly beyond the control of Joe Biden. Now, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Ron exclamation point. We talked yesterday about how Ron DeSantis is going to be headed to Israel, but he also has a bunch of other stops over the next month or so. Politico reports that DeSantis has gone to Georgia to promote his book. And he's planning to head to Pennsylvania and Long Island this weekend, followed by a visit to Tennessee early next week. He's going to head to Hillsdale College in Michigan. The middle of April, will see him going to Ohio and New Hampshire. He's scheduled to be the keynote speaker at the Utah Republican Party convention on April 22nd. He's headed to Austin, Texas for a reception and dinner hosted by John Lonsdale and his wife, Taylor. John Lonsdale is a businessman and investor. He is a co-founder of Palantir, which is Peter Thiel's company, interestingly. And then he heads to Israel. And again, that trip to Israel should give us some interesting hints about where Ron's mind is at in relation to the global regime. Will he be doing the global regime's work In Israel on his visit, because every day it seems like there are more indications that Ron DeSantis is doing the global regime's business here at home. And again, you always got to keep an open mind. This could all be optics, could all just be a show to bring out all of that GOP establishment, elite, conservative, incorporated anti-Trump crowd, make them come out and expose themselves if that's all it is. Been very, very successful. And ultimately, if Ron decides not to run and he endorses Donald Trump, I think people will likely accept that a lot of this was just optics. And Ron will have an opportunity to get back in the good graces of the America First movement. But until that time, let's see what Ron has going on. And before we get into the Ron connection, Let's preview the next topic with a view from the World Economic Forum. The 15-minute city meets human needs but leaves desires wanting. Here's why. And this article, by the way, is on the World Economic Forum website. It is from November 11th, 2021. At long last, it appears that the worst days of the COVID pandemic may finally be behind us. Despite early predictions of a lasting urban exodus, people are heading back. But the pandemic has brought some lasting urban changes, like the attribution of streets once used for cars and parking to bike lanes, parklets and restaurants. And that development has been absolutely terrible, especially if you live in one of these cities that is moving toward the global vision. One of the biggest urban ideas to emerge from the pandemic is the idea of the 15 minute city or 15 minute neighborhood. Developed by French urbanist Carlos Moreno, 15 minute city refers to a place where all the necessities of daily life shops, schools, workplaces, doctor's offices, parks, libraries, restaurants, and other amenities are located in a short 15 minute walk or bike ride from home. In this way, each neighborhood becomes an isochrone, an area that can be explored within a given time, giving all residents access to their needs. Just a convenient walk away. The 15-minute city aims to reorganize physical space around the human experience of time. (laughs) These people are like physicists or something. Workers can live near their offices or co-working spaces, eliminating the commute. Anyone can walk to a small nearby park without having to hunt for parking spaces. Community building will benefit too. Parceling a city into smaller units makes it far more manageable from a social point of view. Various cities around the world have begun to embrace the 15-minute city approach. For instance, Melbourne is proposing self-contained communities with an 800-meter radius. Portland's Climate Action Plan calls for more vibrant neighborhoods in which 90% of the residents can walk or bike to fulfill their daily needs. And how does that make the city more vibrant? They always pretend that everybody's just going to go outside and walk the city streets and love one another rather than what actually happens where everyone feels completely and totally trapped. But the most vocal proponent of the concept remains Paris, where the concept originated. Its mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has been championing the 15-minute city since early 2020 and has embedded it into a broader plan to promote active mobility in lieu of cars, car speed has been limited to 30 kilometers per hour on many streets. Automobiles have been banned along the Seine one Sunday each month and plans to include a biking lane on every street by 2024 are also in the works. And I mean, honestly, how crazy is that? You just can't drive anywhere near this river One Sunday each month. This is how we are going to save the planet. And if you don't remember which Sunday it is, you can't drive. Well, you just stay home and don't go over there on Sunday anymore. And eventually it just becomes you can't drive there on Sundays. Also, I don't know about you, but if I had to drive everywhere at 19 miles an hour, I would go absolutely insane. Such experiments are unprecedented and exciting, and they stand on long established planning principles. Since the crisis of monofunctional modernism in the post war era, urban planners and designers have proposed mixed use developments where residences, schools, and shops stand side by side in diverse neighborhoods. The 15 minute neighborhood provides a specific spatial scale and suggests a new model for the larger city, which is devolved into small repeating parts. Gosh, that sounds great! What's not to like, the World Economic Forum ponders. It turns out the concept is not always a fit. For one, the 15-minute neighborhood doesn't work so well for a suburban nation like the United States. While it is easy to envision Paris, Copenhagen, and Barcelona in small repeating parts, or even in certain places in the U.S. like Manhattan and Brooklyn, or big slices of Boston and Cambridge and Massachusetts, it is harder to imagine this kind of reinvention of far-flung, sprawling suburbs where the majority of Americans live. American cities and suburbs might only... Make the 15-minute cutoff if this could be done in a car. And 15-minute communities do little to alter the harsh realities of economic and geographic inequality. They promise close-by amenities and luxurious walkability for the well-to-do urban gentry. Oh yes, the luxury of walkability. They are mainly fit for affluent urban neighborhoods and far less a fit for the disadvantaged parts of our cities. As Harvard University's Ed Glazer points out, less advantaged groups are hardly able to live their life in their own disadvantaged neighborhoods, which lack jobs, grocery stores, and amenities found in more upscale communities. Many of our urbanist colleagues find themselves asking what is so new about the idea of the 15-minute neighborhood. They see the construct as little more than a rebranded notion of urban neighborhoods or villages. Village life has many upsides, tight-knit communities, a relaxed pace of life, easy commuting, but it lacks the dynamism of a real city. The reality is that urban life requires the broad expanse of entire cities and metro areas, and it is impossible to replicate some of the most important institutions, great universities, great museums, great theaters, at a neighborhood scale. Cities thrive because they create a market for these incredible institutions and assets. We might visit the coffee place around our block every day, but we'll only take the subway to the museum or theater once a month. Indeed, research published recently in Nature shows that in everyday life, the frequency of our visits to a given location is inversely proportional to its distance from our homes. Instead of a complete 15-minute city, we propose to think of something akin to a 15-minute baseline. That more circumscribed term can serve to remind us of the important fact that the truly vibrant parts of the city often begin when the first 15 minutes end. With easy access to the essentials, we can save our longer trips for where we need them to encounter and participate in that diversity and specialization that are only possible at the scale of a real city and metro area. Great neighborhoods are incomplete by definition, functioning as proverbial stepping stones or starting out place from which residents can strike out further. Great neighborhoods are never self-contained, but are always an outgrowth and function of great cities. You may have seen the videos from UK, from parts of Europe, where people are actually going out to their streets and moving these essentially roadblocks. A lot of the times they're like planters blocking the roads that the people who live in those neighborhoods will just go move because they're sick of not being able to drive down their streets. In America, I remember this in Los Angeles, they were trying to do some sort of safe neighborhoods initiative where you have to drive really slow in neighborhoods. They put up speed bumps all over the place. They put little blocks in the road, dividing the lanes, making sure that you can't drive at any normal speed through these neighborhoods. They're just using these kind of half measures that they increase and increase and increase. And then one day, you just can't drive down that street anymore. Eventually, the idea is that you get accustomed to never leaving your local neighborhood. They decide that everything you need is right there at your disposal. So why would you need to go anywhere else? And if we've decided that you don't need to go anywhere else, Well, we don't want you to go anywhere else because you going other places, well, that's going to destroy the planet. So we need to just keep you right where you are. Don't worry. We're going to have your job there. We're going to have a few stores there, a few restaurants, everything you need. You just can't leave. You got to stay there. And it kind of begins to sound like a company town or maybe a slightly less restrictive work camp. Seems like cutting off entire parts of cities and making sure that people stay only in their own parts is a really good way to segregate a city and actually create slums. It's pretty dystopian, honestly, which means it's no surprise that the World Economic Forum would be all for it. But you wouldn't expect politicians in America to be all for it. So it's particularly interesting that Ron exclamation point has signed into law in Florida today, the Live Local Act. Today, we're going to be signing uh, Senate Bill 102 uh, titled the Live Local Act uh, to be able to help Floridians live in the communities where they work. And then Ron holds up his signed bill to applause and starts handing out pens like he's president or something. This is from NBC2 in Florida. From February 22nd, 2023, Fort Myers aims to be a 15-minute city as population increases. We have seen the population literally double in approximately two decades, which is unheard of for municipalities, said Fort Myers public information officer Liz Bellow Matthews. What used to be an appealing retirement destination is now attracting more young families. Those that are looking to raise their kids in an environment that is healthy, that has a lot of different options, they're coming here, said Bello Matthews. We're excited about that. City officials are working to keep up with the growth. The city has 91 active projects, according to Fort Myers Director of Economic Development, Stephen Weathers. I would say probably a majority of those are housing, more higher density, multifamily type housing. Weathers said, weather said the success of any city comes down to the success of its downtown. One of the things I've found in cities I've worked in that makes a downtown appealing is I don't have to go outside of the downtown for, say, a grocery store or a gas station or a dry cleaners. Weathers said, we really want to make this a 15 minute city. The 15-Minute City is an urban planning concept where everyday necessities are easily accessible within a 15-minute walk or bike ride. This can promote more green spaces and cut down on carbon emissions. You see that? This is how you save the planet from the sun. Dr. Wynne Everham, a professor at the Water School at FGCU, studies ecology and how to place people on a landscape in a sustainable way. Oh, Studying how to manage people, that's great. From an environmental standpoint, if we're driving less, we're putting less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, Dr. Everham said. We're slowing the pace at which we're changing the climate that we have to live with. I think most good 15-minute city approaches include a significant amount of green space within walking distance because we're finding out that's really good for people. (laughs) I mean, they're just making it up. This is a concept that is in the works for downtown Fort Myers. And the article goes on, but the point is that the 15-minute cities have already made their way to Florida. There are cities in Florida planning to be 15-minute cities and working in that direction. So today, DeSantis has signed the Live Local Act. This is from Orlando Weekly over the weekend. Florida House passes Live Local Act, which bans rent control, gives tax breaks to developers. With approval Friday from the Florida House, Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo's $711 million effort to make housing more affordable for working Floridians is headed to Governor Ron DeSantis. The House voted 103 to 6 to pass a bill, SB 102, dubbed the Live Local Act. The bill would provide incentives for private investment in affordable housing and encourage mixed-use development in struggling commercial areas, while barring local rent controls and preempting local government rules on zoning, density, and building heights in certain circumstances. Now, this sort of thing has already happened in other states, namely California. And as you might suspect, it's been an absolute disaster. The state imposes new rules about building in communities all throughout the state, and they take all of this money, ship it off to their friends who are supposed to then build, quote unquote, affordable housing. And you might recall the video that I shared on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump talking about how he's going to protect the suburbs from these zoning changes and then low income housing, affordable housing apartment buildings just being put up right next to your house in your local suburban neighborhoods. The state is seizing back power from localities and centralizing the planning. Ah, centralized planning. We know what that's a step toward. In a statement, Pasadomo said the measure aims to end, quote, affordable housing stereotypes in creating options needed by the workforce. She also pointed to continued population growth and the demand for housing, hundreds of millions of dollars from Florida residents to build housing for people who apparently are not yet Florida residents. I wonder who needs that low income, affordable housing in Los Angeles. They always tell us it's the homeless and they make the homeless problem continually worse while spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Years back, they passed Proposition HHH that was supposed to build 10,000 units of affordable housing at a price of $140,000 per unit. And they were going to put 10,000 homeless people in this new affordable housing. That was the plan. And then costs, of course, escalated by five times to the point where, and this is a couple of years ago, I'm sure it's gotten worse since then, but that each unit was going to cost $700,000. And of course, much of that goes to consultants who figure out ways to go around all of the ridiculous regulations that California has put in place. So they're paying enormous amounts of money so that consultants can figure out how to navigate the regulations that they themselves put in place. Utterly insane. A total waste of money. And again, Think about the goals here. Does this sound like a Republican describing responsible America first legislation? Or does it sound like a globalist with an R next to her name telling you how great this massive spending bill is for some class of people? We are supposed to deem vulnerable and then say, yes, we must help them at all costs. It is clear that the broad appeal of the free state of Florida has impacted our population and housing needs. Pasadomo said. House sponsor Demi Busada Cabrera, Republican from Coral Gables, said innovative concepts in the proposal will allow Floridians to live close to where they work. As our state continues to grow, we need to make sure that Floridians can live close to good jobs, schools and hospitals and other centers of their communities that fit within their household budgets, no matter their stage of life or income. Busada Cabrera said. Now, we used to understand that in America, liberty and the natural dynamism that follows is what makes communities thrive. It makes people want to be there, and it brings those kind of resources in naturally because there is a need for them. We're basically flipping markets on their heads and saying, you know what, we're going to plan all of this out for you. The Senate unanimously passed the measure on March 8th, meaning it is now ready to go to DeSantis. And of course, this was over the weekend. He has signed it. Among other things, the bill would create tax exemptions for developments that set aside at least 70 units for affordable housing and would speed permits and development orders for affordable housing projects. Some Democrats expressed concerns about parts of the bill that would prohibit rent controls and impose certain local government preemptions. Representative Anna Escamani from Orlando, a Democrat, pointed to Orange County voters last year approving a referendum to enact rent controls because of a lack of affordable housing and rising rents. I do feel like parts of the bill are going to do a lot of good. It won't be immediate. It'll take time, said Escamani, who voted against the measure. But my constituents are seeking immediate relief. They're seeking renter protections. Orange County's rent control plan hasn't taken effect because of a legal challenge by the industry groups, Florida Realtors, and the Florida Apartment Association. Representative Ashley Gantz, Democrat from Miami, said local government preemptions in the bill would limit public engagement in some South Florida communities facing development pressures. For other Democrats, those concerns were outweighed by increases in funding for housing and rental assistance. The bill would provide money for a series of programs, including $252 million for the Longstanding State Housing Initiatives Partnership, or SHIP, program, $150 million a year to the State Apartment Incentive Loan, or SALE program, and an additional $100 million for the Hometown Heroes program, which is designed to help teachers, healthcare workers, and police officers buy homes. The state budget for the current year includes $362.7 million for affordable housing. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound very America first or Florida first to me to find a bipartisan consensus on spending 700 plus million dollars on quote unquote affordable housing that may get built sometime in a few years. Or maybe not, like California. What exactly is going on with Ron? Now, we've all heard about how Ron was taking on Disney and he was going to take away their special status in Florida. The DeSantis simps online talked about his action against Disney as part of his anti-woke agenda, and Ron was very strong in his ability to take them on. Well, this is from Insider Yesterday. Ron DeSantis' plan to take control of Disney's land backfired spectacularly because of a loophole in the agreement that may reduce his appointees to powerless functionaries. Oh good, it's like his state task force on election fraud. Governor Ron DeSantis' move to take over Walt Disney World's governing board in Florida may have backfired due to a prior obscure agreement that new governor-appointed board members say stripped them of their power. The contentious agreement, approved without fanfare a day before DeSantis assumed more control of Disney's land, is the latest in an apparent feud between the governor and the company. And in setting the expiration terms of the agreement, Disney invoked an obscure property law known as Rule Against Perpetuities, setting the date for 21 years after the death of the last survivor of the descendants of King Charles III, King of England, living... As of the date of this declaration, this essentially makes Disney the government. Ron Perry, a member of the board, said during a meeting on Wednesday, this board loses for practical purposes, the majority of its ability to do anything beyond maintain the roads and maintain basic infrastructure. For close to six decades, Disney has operated its expansive theme park and resort in Florida under a specially designated district that lies between two counties a board previously known as Reedy Creek Improvement District, oversaw the area and had free reign of development processes such as zoning and infrastructure and even control of its own fire department, essentially operating like a separate municipal government. Disney also had the authority to appoint district board members. The special status came under threat when Disney entered the fray of DeSantis' culture war last year. After the company publicly objected to Florida's proposal to ban the discussion of sexual orientation in K through three public classrooms. And again, it is always worth pointing out how Disney is totally okay with small children being sexualized at a young age. One begins to wonder if their proliferation of entertainment for small children takes into account. Their willingness to sexualize young children and indoctrinate them with all sorts of other skewed moralities kind of makes you wonder if they've been doing that the whole time in a show of political force. DeSantis, who is a likely contender for the 2024 Republican nomination, attempted to dissolve the Reedy Creek district. But the dissolution would have placed the burden of paying for a fire department and road maintenance, among other services, onto taxpayers in Orange and Osceola counties. Residents would also have to pick up the district's hefty $1 billion debt. Instead, Florida lawmakers passed a bill in February to end Disney's self-governing status and give the governor the authority to appoint new board members to the district. Reedy Creek was renamed to the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District and DeSantis' appointed five supervisors, including a parents' rights activist and three Republican donors. But the new supervisors are now saying that previous board members entered an agreement that effectively stripped them of their powers. We're going to have to deal with it and correct it, Brian Angst, a member of the board, said during a meeting on Wednesday. It's a subversion of the will of the voters and the legislature and the governor. It completely circumvents the authority of this board to govern. Another board member, Bridget Ziegler, also tweeted on Wednesday that, quote, if unlawful actions were taken, this development agreement will be nullified. According to the agreement text, Disney was given a slew of powers, including development rights for the next 30 years or until 2053, and the authority to approve any design improvements. A declaration of restrictive covenants also bars the district from using Disney's name, characters, symbols, or any other Disney-owned intellectual property. DeSantis has previously said that his new board members will be able to tailor the type of entertainment at the park, though it's unclear how they would be able to do so. When you lose your way, you got to have people that are going to tell you the truth, DeSantis said when signing the law that granted him authority over the district in February. All these board members very much would like to see the type of entertainment that all families can appreciate. The agreement DeSantis' appointed members are now objecting to was signed on February 8th, a day before the Florida House voted to change the existing governing body. According to Wednesday's agenda documents, the new district is seeking counsel from four law firms. One of those firms, Cooper and Kirk, has received more than $2.8 million in legal fees and contracts from the DeSantis administration, the Orlando Sentinel reported. All agreements signed between Disney and the district were appropriate and were discussed and approved in an open, noticed public forums in compliance with Florida's government in the Sunshine Law, Disney said in a statement to Insider. DeSensis communications director, Taryn Fensky, said in an emailed statement to Insider that the, quote, executive office of the governor is aware of Disney's last-ditch efforts to execute contracts just before ratifying the new law that transfers rights and authorities from the former Reedy Creek Improvement District to Disney. An initial review suggests these agreements may have significant legal infirmities that would render the contracts void as a matter of law, Fensky wrote. The new governor-appointed board retained multiple financial and legal firms to conduct audits and investigate Disney's past behavior. And then there's this, today also from Insider. It'll cost DeSantis's hand-picked board at least $1300 per hour to hire a team of lawyers to investigate how Disney outmaneuvered them. It's going to cost Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his handpicked board nearly $1,300 per hour in legal fees to investigate how Disney found a loophole in the governor's plan to take over the company's governing rights over Disney World, stripping the new government-appointed board members of their power. An agenda from the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District's Wednesday meeting includes letters from two law firms agreeing to represent DeSantis in his fight against the entertainment giant. The firms Cooper and Kirk and Lawson quote will represent the district regarding certain constitutional and contract matters and potential legal challenges. According to the agenda, Cooper and Kirk will bill the Florida governor $795 per hour and Lawson bills at $495 per hour, meaning in total DeSantis's government will owe both firms at least $1,290 per hour for their services. Each firm tax on additional hundreds of dollars for any work done by legal assistants and paralegals. So apparently, Ron was outmaneuvered and didn't get what he set out to achieve. This broadside against Disney turns out not to be the win everyone's pretending it is. And now he's being forced to spend all of this money on attorneys to figure out where things went wrong. How did this loophole stay there? Well, the most likely answer is someone involved in the process of implementing all this left that loophole open for Disney on purpose. Why? Because Disney has all sorts of power in the state and they didn't want things to change. Naturally, everyone's already chalked this up as a win for Ron. So from a corrupt political perspective, this is basically a win-win. Ron gets his optical victory and Disney gets to keep things as they are. So what is going on with Ron? Donald Trump is still going after him. Donald Trump continues to crush him in the polls. A Fox News poll came out yesterday showing Trump with a 30-point lead Over DeSantis, up 11 from February, from February to March in the Fox News poll, Trump has gone from plus two to plus 18 in the suburbs. You know, the place where Trump is very, very weak with the white working class. Trump has jumped from plus 28 to plus 43 among women. Trump has gone from plus 17 to plus 27 among men. Trump has gone from plus 14 to plus 22. And isn't that amazing how Trump is so drastically outpacing Ron with women and with people in the suburbs? Those are the groups of people we are told Trump just can't reach. Well, he seems to be reaching them. We've always been told he was never going to reach black or Hispanic voters either. But they have been coming his way for years. Donald Trump is not only the most popular Republican in the country. He's the most popular Republican in Florida. He's the most popular politician in the country, and he may well be the most popular politician in the world. We just have a media that says otherwise and people who are incentivized to try to destroy Trump at every turn based on their own personal needs and, of course, their membership in the party of false decorum. And so let's wrap up with this statement from yesterday, Donald Trump addressing Rhonda Sanctimonious. In
1: addition to wanting to cut Social Security In addition to wanting to cut Social Security and raise the minimum age to at least 70, and Medicare, he wanted to absolutely destroy it. Rhino, Ron DeSanctimonious, is delivering the biggest insurance company bailout in globalist history. This is a gift to insurance companies and a disaster for the people of Florida. He's also crushed Florida homeowners whose houses were destroyed in the hurricane. They have been absolutely decimated. They're getting pennies on the dollar. His insurance commissioner does absolutely nothing while Florida's lives are ruined. The hurricane was a disaster. The hurricane was actually handled very poorly. And the insurance companies are being made whole. The people of Florida aren't. This was a total sellout to the insurance companies. The worst insurance scam in the entire country with the highest rates in the entire country. That's Florida. So you have to tell it like it is. And I'm just telling it like it is. Shouldn't be allowed to happen. Thank you very much.
0: So if it's all optics or all kayfabe, then maybe Ron can come back from all of this. But if it's not, Ron's finished. His political career is probably finished in the relatively near future as well. And again, we're going to know soon, within the next two months, we'll see how his Israel trip goes, and then we will see whether or not the Florida legislature opens the possibility for Ron to run by removing the restriction that says he would have to resign in order to run. If that doesn't happen by the end of May when their legislative session ends, well, then Ron ain't running. It's possible that they pass it and Ron still doesn't run, which means that we may not find out by the end of May. But I think it's a pretty solid bet that we are going to have a real clear picture of whether or not Ron is running by the end of May. Regardless, the DeSantis simp op and this kind of push to draft Ron DeSantis into the presidential race has been going on now for five or six months, and it has only hurt Ron DeSantis. The people who are mad at Donald Trump for going after Ron DeSantis are the same people who are mad at Donald Trump for everything he does. They find something that Trump is doing wrong all the time, no matter what. Trump put out that statement about DeSantis yesterday and Kurt Schlichter and the other simps got very mad, simp mad, simp smash. They said it was embarrassing for Donald Trump. There's nothing about that that's embarrassing for Donald Trump. It is 100% okay, and indeed it's necessary, for Donald Trump to show the clear differences between himself and Ron DeSantis, particularly if Ron DeSantis is the globalist Trump is painting him to be. We can't know for sure which way this is going to go, but one person absolutely does know, and that's Donald Trump. He has no doubt whether or not Ron is serving the global regime or whether Ron is aligned with the America First movement and agenda. I, for one, look forward to finding out because we are going to learn a whole lot about the GOP establishment, the quote-unquote conservative media, and good old Ron himself. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com. And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon. Out on the range.